Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control <laughs> the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. For the purposes of this email, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. Yes, and uh, here's how this podcast works. We do a lot of stuff here at the critically acclaimed network. We talk about a lot of things. We do a lot of podcasts, but that's us. That's mm-hmm. us talking about our stuff. We want to hear from you. We want to answer your questions. We want to respond to your criticisms. We want to give you the platform mm-hmm. uh, to basically join in the conversation yourself. So here's how that works. You can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. box if anyone wants to actually send in a physical letter or anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, you can write into the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And uh, we missed last week's episode because Whitney was out of town. Whitney, you I feeling realize. re-energized? Feeling better? Uh, just, no, just exhausted because we were we were in Las Vegas and that's oh. not a relaxing <laughs> thing. No, well, that's not it, a- that's not was, a weekend by the lake. That's uh, a, but no, we had a, we had a nice few days in Las Vegas. We yeah. stayed in a hotel we wanted to stay at. We saw Billy Idol in concert. Nice. Billy Idol is sixty five and he can still bring it. Good for him. Mm. Appreciate and he, it. And he's clearly doing a lot of sit ups. So I <laughs> felt very insecure about my own body when sixty five year old Billy Idol took his shirt off on stage. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it was it was a good time. We ate a lot and we we drank a lot. I tried mezcal for the first time. Ooh, how was it? Uh, very good. Um, I I hadn't found any sort of like tequila that I liked, mm-hmm. but I never had just sort of like straight up mezcal. It's mm-hmm. incredibly smoky, which is a flavor I prefer. Yeah. I like lapsang souchong and things that taste like a campfire. Yeah, and mezcal seems to be like the booze version of that. And that right. I don't drink to excess very often. I've, you didn't used to drink at all. No, I was actually off booze until in my thirties. Um, oh. This is a tangent, but this is the kind of thing we talk about on this yeah, show. We'll anyway. make it but, quick. Um, we want to get to your letters. Yeah, I, I didn't want to drink like an asshole, so I just didn't drink. Ah. Uh, I, I was a little maybe too aware of how like my friends in their early 20s behaved when they were on booze, so I just was a teetotaler. Yeah. So I didn't really... But by the time I was like 31, it's like, okay, I can I can taste now. I can, I can yeah. handle it now. I'm an adult. I should be able to enjoy this. So I've been... Seeking out new cocktails. You're becoming a bit of a connoisseur as opposed a to just a little bit. I've, I've, yeah, I've actually found like kinds of booze that I prefer over others, which yeah. is rare. All right. Anyway. Well, let's jump into some letters. Uh, we're gonna again, we're gonna catch up as best we can, but uh, we never have time for everything. So, yeah. Whitney, let's just jump right in. Tell us uh, about our first letter. Uh, here's a letter from Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hi, uh, Andrew. Hi there, Bibbs and Monsieur McCool. C'est moi. Uh, Recently, I watched a movie I loved and watched all the time on HBO or Cinemax in the late 80s and early 90s and was surprised at one of the supporting characters. The movie is My Best Friend is a Vampire. Oh, I remember that. A ridiculous, cheesy movie that I still find delightful, mostly because of Rene Auberginois and David Warner. Of course, of course they're in it. Uh, <laughs> But I was surprised to see an early performance by Kathy Bates as the love interest's mother. Mm-hmm. This brought to mind a question. What's a film that you watched when you were young that featured a performer that is now famous that you didn't even think about until a later revisit? Another good example is Groundhog Day with a supporting role played by Michael Shannon, well before anybody recognized his face. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, there's this interesting thing where, um, you know, all, a lot of actors, the, the majority of actors, mm-hmm. they don't, like, have their first role as a really big one, and then they break out. It happens once in a while, but it's really, really rare. That's just mm-hmm. why we talk about it. 
Um, most people have a few small parts and then a few bigger parts and then they start getting noticed and they start getting bigger parts and they have a breakout bar and then they get bigger roles. So what sometimes happens is you see some movies and then a few years later, someone became a big actor Hmm. and then you didn't process all of a sudden that I'll give you my example off the top, uh, in my boyfriend's back, a comedy directed by Bob Balaban about a uh, nerdy teenager who dies saving the life of the girl he likes in high school. And as he's dying, he asks her to the prom and she says yes. Mm. So when he gets to heaven, he's like, uh, I am not dying. I have a prom date. So he comes back as a flesh-eating zombie, but all he wants to do is go to prom. And meanwhile, she's like, you were dying. I thought I was just being polite. He's like, well, you promised. <laughs> And unfortunately, <laughs> he just has this desire to eat human flesh. And um, it's a dark, weird comedy. It's actually kind of funny. And so, two of the high school dudes in it, mm-hmm. uh, like the the like the jock a-holes, are Matthew McConaughey and Philip Seymour Hoffman. No kidding. Yeah, they oh, were not, really funny. you would not have known their names mm-hmm. at the time. You would not have recognized mm-hmm. them. You would watch that movie and go, oh, those guys were pretty there good, like, is. dude- jerk bully types and then like 10 years go by you look back and like is that philip seymour hoffman with an axe in his head my god it is and that guy is eating him neat we all gotta start somewhere yeah. um uh we recently reviewed the film mystic pizza and i knew oh, that yeah. baby matt damon was in that one he has um, one line that's about yes. whether or not you can eat the poop in a lobster yeah <laughs> Again, gotta start somewhere. Yeah, so they needed a, somebody to play that part. Uh, I'm. It's always exciting to me when because uh, I like to delve through like crappy old slasher movies and horror films. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, the guy from The Brain is the same guy from Twice Dead. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you care? Do you know either of those movies? Uh, but it's always fun when you you see. Uh, a famous star getting their start in a slasher movie. Um, yeah. Uh, case in point, when I saw Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out. I haven't seen that uh, one. Laura Herring is in that one. Laura, oh. Laura Elena Herring is from, in that uh, one. Uh, from uh, Mulholland Drive. And The Punisher. And The Punisher. Yeah. Uh, very good actor. She, she was on the upswing for a while there, and then uh, Just sort of fell, the fell out of the public eye. Damn but, shame. Very, very talented. Yeah. I, they, they still work. Yeah, they, 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 they've had still, a career. They're still getting they a lot of work. Could, just should have been she, a big star. She should have been a bigger star. Um, certainly deserved it. Oh gosh, what else? Oh, um, I have a good one. It's um, so there's this uh, there's this movie called The Lavender Hill Mob. Have you ever seen The Lavender Hill that's Mob? It's an Ealing comedy. Yeah, it's an Ealing comedy, and Ealing is this uh, studio in Britain that they made all kinds of movies, but they became kind of uh, uh, a name brand recognition for a series of wry eccentric comedies that they produced mostly in the late 40s and 1950s mm-hmm. uh and they, they were the ones that did the lady killers the one the movie that uh, the coen brothers remade about mm-hmm. uh, uh a group of thieves who rent rooms from a nice old lady because it's convenient for their heist scam mm-hmm. and then they have to kill her but by sheer coincidence every single time they try they kill themselves <laughs> very dark very funny there's a film they call the lavender hill mob uh, which is about Alec Guinness, uh, you know, this this very uh, uh, affable young, uh, uh, not young, an affable man comes cool. up with a brilliant idea for how to steal stuff and then he does it and it's all very charming. The opening, mm. he's being like interviewed 
And he's talking about like how this plan came to fruition, how talking about all of his great success. And there's a gag where someone just walks by and tells him how, like, just says hi to him, clearly thinks he's really, really great. And it's Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> and that's their only, they, they, they're barely in the movie. They got like one line. And you watch the movie now, and here's the gag. This guy is like so popular and famous or whatever that Audrey Hepburn knows who he is. That movie was made before she was a big star. Mm. She was a random, attractive lady in the movie. Oh, that's really that's what she was cast as. And that was the original joke is some random, attractive lady finds Alec Guinness very exciting. Mm. But in actuality, <laughs> nowadays, because we know about Audrey Hepburn, the entire joke has shifted. Yeah, And now yeah. it's this weird, wild, unexpected Audrey Hepburn cameo. And it fits the joke. Mm. It's really weird. Um, uh, I, I forgot. I think I've been... In one of the Elvis films. Yeah. Uh, of which there are many. Of which there are many. Um, Elvis, uh, I, I forgot his motivation. He wanted to be injured. I think he was trying to come up with an excuse for something. So he needed to uh, to have a limp by the time he moved to the next scene and interacted with no whoever needed to. And, and uh, But he, he paid a kid that he met at the airport to kick him in the shin. It's like, oh, hey, yeah. kid, can you kick me? I need to have a limp. <laughs> I, I don't exactly remember why he needed a limp, but that was the, the motivation of the film. That little kid was Kurt Russell. <laughs> That's true. And Kurt Russell would go on to play Elvis multiple times. Mm -hmm. He played he played Elvis in a TV movie. Uh, called Elvis, called directed by John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and then he had a, he an uncredited role in Forrest Gump as Elvis. And uh, he played an Elvis impersonator in a truly terrible movie called 3000 miles to Graceland. And so did Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner also played yeah, a, a, a yeah. Elvis impersonator. It was about Elvis impersonators staging like a heist. It was like yeah. scuzzy and awful. And yeah. It's a terrible movie. Don't they, watch it. But, they tell yeah. you never to go back. Uh, always go back, but don't, <laughs> go, but don't go back and assume everything's the way you left it. Yeah. Sometimes you'll see things you never noticed before. Sometimes you'll go like, Oh, that movie wasn't good. Mm. And that's okay. But you'll find things you missed. Yeah. Because the way you watch movies when you're young is different. And in the benefit of many years of context, a lot of things about that movie can change. Mm. A lot of things. Uh, but that's a fun question. Thank you for answering. Uh, what's mm. our next letter? I'm waiting. Um, our next letter comes from Cameron. Hello, Cameron. Hi, Cameron. Uh, greetings, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. I just finished your Iron List episode on the best horror comedies of all oh. time and was surprised at the omission of mm. two of my favorite horror comedies. Uh-oh, what, what do we do? Which two you, which are two you have actually introduced me to. Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, and Prom Night 3, The Last Kiss. Oh my god, we did fuck up. <laughs> that, we totally fucked up. Those should at least us. have been honorable mentions. Those movies uh, are wonderful. Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2 has all of the all of the reputation. Prom yes. Night 3 is at least as good. Well, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2... Let's read the email, anyway, but like, we'll, email. we'll talk about this movies in a minute. Uh, Hello, Mary Lou has a rocking horse with a human tongue, and Prom Night 3 has a scene where the main character has sex with a ghost on the American flag as the Star Spangled Banner plays in the background. Yes. <laughs> what more could you want? I figured I'd ask a question here as well, so mm. I'll ask, what are some of your favorite theater or slash big screen experiences you've had? I recently had the pleasure of seeing George A. Romero's Once Lost, the amusement park on the big screen here in, here in Pittsburgh with a crowded audience, vaccination oh, required. I am jealous. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, thank you for taking the time to read this long email. I appreciate all the hours of entertainment, Cameron. Um, so the prom, okay, so we recently did this episode of The Iron List. It's like two and a half hours long. And we talked about the films that we thought were the best horror comedies of all time. And somehow Whitney and I both neglected to include, even in our honorable mentions, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, and Prom Night 3, The Last Kiss. Uh, these movies are wonderful, and I want to give them a moment. 
the first prom night starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Leslie Nielsen is an adequate slasher. Hmm. It's not very interesting. Some of the writing's pretty good. I like I like some of the characters in it, but it's pretty much prototypical slasher territory. Hmm. The sequels were some of those movies that were like not designed to be prom night sequels, but because they kind of revolved around a prom night, they got like turned into part of the yeah. franchise in order to sell them. I think that, they, was, that was Prom Night 4, wasn't it? It was oh, repurposed? Or? But yeah, but even 2 and 3, I think, was originally not... They weren't. I believe they didn't set out to make a sequel to Prom Night. They were going to make these horror well, movies. Prom Night 3, it's the same character. So yeah, but, were, horror, but Prom Night still, 2 and 3 together yeah. were like a separate idea. But yeah. This is what I heard, anyway. Um, but uh, but all of a sudden, it's supernatural. There's a ghost haunting the high school. There's the most mm. popular girl in school, but she's really evil. Starts infecting this goody two-shoes, and... It's wild, it's creative, it's weird, and it took a long time, but eventually it found a cult audience and people really, really respect it, Mm. for being weird at least. Uh, And it's super entertaining, you should watch it. For whatever reason, the follow-up, Prom Night 3, I think it's because it's a little less widely available and because Mm. like the only version available is trimmed a bit, I think it it got like cut down for rating or whatever. Mm. Prom Night 3 does not have the same cult. It is just as weird and fun. It opens <laughs> it with... It starts in hell. It opens with Mary Lou, the, the villain from the original film, in hell. Like, shackled to, like, the, the caves of hell. And, like, listing in music with her other, like, Prom Night zombies. And then she breaks out of hell. And she, like, latches on to the cool guy at school and decides he's gonna be... She, he's gonna be her new boyfriend. And when, like... Uh, a teacher gives him a bad grade. She shows up in that teacher's classroom as the waitress at an ice cream parlor, which is now there. And when he orders two ice cream cones, she takes the ice cream cones and stabs him through the hands with the pointy bits of the ice cream cones. And if you're not on board at that point, I don't know what more I can give you. That's I just gave you gold and you were just like fat. If you soak it in a special kind of sugar cement, it's <laughs> sharp enough to stab. Uh, but yeah, yeah, those movies are um, wonderful. Please see those movies. The other sequels are trash. They're really, really bad. Really, really bad. Well, there's Your a favorite. Uh, th- there's a four and is there a five as well? I don't remember. There's a f- there's a there's a four. There's a five. Then there's like an unofficial six. Yeah, and there's a remake as well. And then there's yeah. a remake, which is also really bad. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it doesn't even make any sense. Like, um, it's really just. Oof. But the the second part of that letter was, what are your favorite theatrical experiences? We of uh, this is something we talk about from time to time. Uh, mm-hmm. It comes up uh, things that we enjoy about going to a theater experience. Uh, you talked about seeing the amusement park. I imagine the audience was really into it, and I'm that's back. that's a way to. Uh, it's a fun way to sort of feed off the energy of the movie. I remember when I saw Mystery Men for the first time. Mm. I actually got to see it a few days ahead of time. I was like, well, they had like an early screening. Like it was one of the, or something. It was, yeah, it was like one of those early screenings here in Los Angeles. It was at the theater that's not there anymore over in uh, Century City. Mm. Uh, oh yeah, o- yeah, yeah, over by where the Schubert used to be. Yeah, yeah, where they shot, uh, uh, where they shot uh, Conquest, Conquest of, of the Planet of the, of the Apes. Apes yeah, you know, it was shot there because it looked really <clears throat> futuristic. Yeah. Uh, the Schubert Theater was notorious because it showed cats. And nothing but cats. That is the Android Lloyd Webber musical. Mm. It wasn't just full of cats. If uh, <laughs> it was, I would never have left. Yeah. But there was a gigantic movie theater there. I saw Eyes Wide Shut in that theater. I saw Apocalypse mm. Now in that theater. I got to see the, pretty much the premiere of this like 2000 seat theater of Mystery Men, and everybody loved it. Yeah. Everybody was laughing. I was so surprised when that film bombed because it was so popular. It's a crowd pleaser. Yeah. It, it, but the trick is getting people into a theater, you know? Yeah, it's like the, mar- it's, the marketing doesn't work. People don't know. It's weird in a really amusing sort of way. It's got an amazing yeah cast tom waits plays a mad scientist 
who who lives with chickens. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a classic. Mm-hmm. I love uh, that movie. Very so much. yeah, that that was a really exhilarating experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be just as much fun if people don't like it. Like there's a lot of jeering and hooting and hollering. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you know you see a really bad horror movie, but it is enhanced by the fact that everybody's sort of like screaming and wiggling and laughing and throwing popcorn. Um, oh, the, I, for, I forgot what it was. I saw I saw a horror movie like that where everybody was. It wasn't a good film, but everybody was reacting very yeah. well. Uh, one of the best the, uh, theatrical experiences I've ever been to was a really unusual one. Um, mm. There was a special screening here in Los Angeles, and this is something that will probably only happen a couple of times and may never happen again. And I'm very fortunate that I got to experience it. Uh, it was a special presentation of Wizard People, dear reader. <laughs> and uh, by Brad Neely. Yeah, Brad Neely, very funny comic book artist and cartoonist. Uh, check out his stuff on YouTube. Uh, watch uh, the, the the cartoon that's a music video about George Washington, mm. and you'll get the gist. Very, very weird. Very adult swim. Um, <laughs> I'm a big fan. Um, Ten stories tall, made of radiation. <laughs> He'll save children, but not the British <laughs> He'll save children, but not the but British, not the British children. children. That's the Washington song. I got yeah. to see that at Spike and Mike's Sick and Twisted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he had a bit that he did, and was originally released online, where he was reading like a book on tape, hmm. a movie called Wizard People. Well, he, and he was reading. Uh, it, it's kind of high concept. It's super was, high concept. He was reading a book on tape, but it was also meant to serve as a direct commentary track. Yes. To the feature film Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So basically, what's happening is the video for Harry Potter, mm. no audio, is the, the original Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, is playing, and mm. he's doing a commentary track, uh, and he is telling you what's happening. He's telling you the dialogue. He's telling you the plot. But he is only vaguely aware of what the plot was actually supposed to be. And he's telling you this alternate version, which is astoundingly funny. And he's... I I can't even, like... uh, 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 I'm trying to remember. Like, uh, Professor McGonagall becomes Professor Hardcastle McCormick. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Ron Weasley becomes Ronnie the Bear. mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Hagrid becomes Hagar the Horrible, and yeah. and he gets like lo- passages deliberately wrong, like, and he puts Harry Potter on his motorcycle. Do you yeah. like flying on jaguars? Well, Harry says anything beats crawling, and he takes a big <laughs> pull from his whiskey flask, and they fly into, like, he turns them into like these sort of like archetypal tough guys that yeah. cuss at each other. It's absolutely hilarious. It's it's part. Some of the jokes haven't aged well, but mostly it's really, really, really funny. I think you can still find it online. Uh, just watch the Quidditch match, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Just watch which, that chapter. Which he calls it's cribbage. He calls it cri- <laughs> the game of cribbage. Um, Harry is <laughs> Harry's practically hulking out at this point. Yeah. Harry grabs the golden snitch and says, "I am Harry fucking Potter. <laughs> I, am, I am the destroyer of worlds. I am a beautiful animal. And I am at, Harry fucking Potter." And at last, yeah. dear reader. The earth was silent. <laughs> it, it's really some of the funniest thing you'll ever see. He did it live. They showed the movie. They turned the audio down. And Brad Neely was at a piano. And on top of the piano was like two dozen beers. And he was just drinking it the entire time. And getting drunker and drunker. And it was an amazing show. One of the coolest things oh, ever. Very, so very rare. Cool. Very, very rare experience. That was badass, though. Have you ever gotten to see a silent film with live music? I have. They okay. used to do that at UCLA a few times. Okay. Um, 
they, they, they showed a they showed a a, um, a bunch of Buster Keaton shorts with a oh, live fun. organist. I think it might have been the same guy they usually have at the El Capitan. Okay, uh, yeah. yeah. So that's cool. That's always a treat. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. I got to. Uh, I got to. I, I, we're lucky. We live in LA. We get to have some like some special stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, one time when I was in film school at UCLA, there's a theater in the film school called the James Bridges Theater, mm-hmm. and they'll have classes there. And then they'll actually like ask like the UCLA Film Archive. It's like, hey, could you send over a print of? I don't know, Michael Antonioni's Red Desert, and then they'll show it in class and we'll talk about it. Very, very cool stuff. One day I'm leaving school and I see there's a big line around the bridges and I'm like, what's going on? And they're like, they're showing Remains of the Day. And I'm like, and it's got this big a line? And they're like, well, Anthony Hopkins is here. So I get him. (laughs) Of course. And Remains of the Day is playing and that movie is fucking phenomenal. And at the end, Anthony Hopkins just showed up and shot the shit for 90 minutes and it was amazing. So these things just happened. Uh, I might have told this story before, but I've, I've told you the Ken Russell story, right? Yes. You told yeah, me. We, 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 yeah, we, we, we got to go to the uh, the Academy screening room here, and it's in Beverly Hills. It's actually moved to a new location. The new museum just opened up. Yeah. I haven't been yet. Uh, but it was going to be a screening of Tommy, uh, which Ken Russell directed, the Who's Tommy. And... Uh, they sort of rewired the entire theater for sound, and Ken Russell was going to be there for a Q&A afterwards. Uh, so we all watched the movie. It's completely bananas, and uh, everybody's sort of like sitting back waiting to hear what this very eccentric filmmaker, Ken Russell, is going to say. And, yeah. and he gets out, and the, he's sitting in a chair opposite the interviewer, and he is shutting him down at every available opportunity. Mm, the not having a conversation. Not, not having a conversation, not answering the questions. It's like, how, how, so, how, how'd you like the movie? He's good, good, good. Okay, um, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, how did you get the cast together? Oh, you know, just you hire actors. Uh, okay, uh, and eventually he, it came to the point where like, <laughs> he even says, you're not giving me anything. Well, oh, good, good, good. Like, he's clearly shutting <laughs> this guy down. Like, he's doing it on purpose to be Yeah, like, and, yeah. and we weren't sure, like, what's going on here? And uh, he finally just kind of put the button on the whole conversation. He said, you know, directing's very easy. The beginning of a scene, you say, Action. At the end, you say, cut. And that's directing. <laughs> Thank you, Ken Russell. Thank you, Ken. That explains how the devils happen. <laughs> yeah, the director of the devils and, <laughs> yeah, and just layer sort of, of the white worm. Just sort of came to work and besides. said action and cut. Oh, and oh. somehow that happened. <laughs> sure. Whatever you say. And we left completely baffled. And it, we didn't learn until later that that was an act of revenge. Yeah. Uh, he, we uh, learned that he had been asked to... He lives in England, or lived in England. He's passed away now. But he, he was living in England at the time. And they said, why don't you come out, uh, stay here a couple days, and you can do this Q&A. And he said, okay. And where are you going to put me up? What hotel am I staying in? And they said, well, we know you have family nearby. Just stay with them. And he said, fuck you. It's pretty you're, presumptuous. You're not, you're not going to pay for a hotel. I'm not going to ask my family. That's, yeah, that's... That's very presumptuous. Imposing. You assume that that's okay. You, you are now imposing on my family. Yeah. And that's not okay for you to do. So that was what he did. The, 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 I think they ended up paying for a hotel. I don't remember what like, the well, actual too late detail at that was. Point. But he was so pissed off. That yeah. was the Q&A he gave. Wow. The worst Q&A imaginable. That's amazing. It was great. Good for him. Uh, mm. One last one and then we'll move on. Mm. Uh, a movie I never thought I'd get to see on the big screen. Mm. And about 10 years ago, a mutual friend of ours had a birthday and they knew people who worked at the New Beverly Cinema before Quentin Tarantino mm. bought it. And hey, they hey, fina- I've, I've heard of that place. And they finagled mm. a midnight screening 
of Rockula. <laughs> and if anyone knows me, if you've heard me talk about it, Rockula is one of my favorite movies. Is it one of the best movies you've ever seen? No. Is it one of my favorites? Yes. It is a very funny, very silly comedy starring Dean Cameron as a vampire whose true love, he meets his true love, and then two weeks later she is always killed by a pirate with a rhinestone peg leg. And this happens over and over again. She's repeatedly reincarnated, and it's been going on for centuries, and he's getting really pissed off about it. And this time she's a pop star, and in order to woo her, he starts a vampire-themed rock band called Rockula. Full of great cameos, the music's really catchy and fun, but it barely got released when it initially came out. Doesn't have much of a cult. I really didn't think I'd ever get to see it on the big screen, but I did. That was awesome. And on top of that, Dean Cameron was there. I idolized Dean Cameron mm. as a child. Between Rockula, the original ski school, and summer school, Dean Cameron was like my Zac Efron. Like, mm. he was a big deal to me. And he was a very, very nice guy. And at the Q&A afterwards, he was initially very self-effacing. And what we found out was he thought we were all here to make fun of the movie. And he mm. was and he was a good sport about it. Uh-huh. And he was like, oh, okay, this, that's what happened to Rockula. Shame, but okay. And then... While he's giving this self-effacing thing about making this stupid movie, a friend of mine named Brian gets up in the audience and says, Hey, Dean, stop kicking my puppy, dude. (laughs) And Dean Cameron stopped and he realized, oh, everyone here actually likes it unironically. And he totally changed his demeanor, and then he wrote a blog post about it, about how it made him feel better to know that this movie he made, that he actually put a lot into, is now appreciated, and it it kind of changed his view on it, and it was really, really sweet. So that was a really heartwarming one. So there you go. Um, Yeah, that was nice. I like that memory. All right, well, we should move on, though. But thank you for the great great trip down memory lane. Uh, Here is a letter from Sean. Hello, Sean. Uh, Greetings and humble salutations, Mr. McCool and Hot Men Bibbs. Hotman. Hotman. Hotman Bibbs. Hotman. That's uh, from Avatar The Last Airbender in the Fire Nation. Everyone says Hotman. Do they? Yeah. They say, right. that's, that's what you say instead of Sir. Hotman. Hotman. Okay. I don't know if that's what they're referencing, but that's what I'm right. uh, I think it is because I think they're going to bring up uh, Avatar. But uh, uh, I've been a fan of you both since I stumbled across the B-Movies podcast, and I've followed you both ever since. Oh, well, thank you for following us all this way. Uh, both your perspectives have really opened up the way I consume media as an art form, and it and really helped increase my intake of independent film. While I do disagree with some of your criticisms, one of you more than the other, I won't say which, which would be rude to Whitney. Uh, <laughs> thank you. It's a lot of people who are the exact opposite. There's a lot of people who are the exact don't, opposite. It's fair. I don't want people to agree with me. I just want people no. to listen. Um, I've never found those disagreements to be unfounded, and they have really helped my uh, hone my views on things I love, and for that I am entirely grateful. I just got done with the mailbag episode in which you discussed your favorite episodes of television, and I'm sure Bibbs already knows from my greeting, but I cannot express how happy I am that Avatar The Last Airbender uh, was included in the discussion. I was 19 when the show was released, and it has been a real struggle to convince my friends how amazing the show actually is. Bibbs' choices of Tales of Ba Sing Se and Mm -hmm. Appa's Lost Days are beautiful. I don't know if I ever cried harder at a TV show than what I did when Iroh started singing a song to his son. That's right. Um, I would also throw in Zuko Alone, Sokka's Master, and The Storm as truly remarkable storytelling. Those are also really good episodes, yeah. Uh, But the episode that really sticks out to me is The Old Masters. This is the second episode Mm. of the four-part finale. And I truly feel that it is an amazing episode uh, in the middle of what I believe is one of the greatest conclusions to a TV show of all time. Mm. Zuko's reunion with Iroh is touching and beautiful and 
Ang's literal internal battle at the idea of taking a life is something I think should everyone should see. Yeah. But since my friends and I were basically adults when this came out, most of my friends don't believe me when I talk about a Nicktoon being one of the best TV shows of all time. Uh, it was a Nickelodeon thing? I know it, it was. Was it was on Nickelodeon, okay. yeah. And that got me wondering, has that ever happened to you? Have either of you ever come across something that was... Uh, perhaps made for children that you came across in your adulthood uh, that you found to be truly great. And how did you convince other people to give it a shot? Uh, thank you both for everything you do. I'm looking forward to your full avatar discussion. When Whitney finally watches the show, please Whitney, I know you're busy, but we need this. Yours truly, Sean. I'll probably put that on a poll after we're done with our Patreon uh, work through Batman, the 1960s. But um, yeah, that is th- those are indeed wonderful things. Uh, to answer your question, uh, what did you do when you discovered something as an adult that you wanted people to see that they might not otherwise have been into because it seems you know, childish or weird? Mm. Uh, the answer is uh, we we have these podcasts. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind what, of what look, we do. That's one of the, that's a reason to become a critic is to mm. want to share art with people and try to encourage people to see things they might not otherwise have and maybe yeah. see the value in things that they might otherwise have been shut off to for one reason or another growing up i would see the value in a lot of art often child art because that's what i was not child art but like art geared towards kids art art for younger demographics i don't even want to say for kids i just want to yeah. say uh that acceptable for kids. I, w- I would say art aimed at kids. That, How's that? that? Like that it's, be it, they're, it, it's because of the fact that Avatar, you said it yourself, Avatar was on Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. Nickelodeon is the self-described kids network. Yeah. yeah Ergo, yeah. it makes it, it's not unreasonable. It's, it's Spon- wrong, but it's Spongebob, not a, for instance, It's not unreasonable yeah. for adults to think that if it's on Nickelodeon, it's just for kids. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's closed minded, but it's not entirely an unreasonable assumption because that's what the branding suggests. Um, and I think it is up to critics to take it upon themselves when they see to a give everything a chance mm. and B when they see something that is genuinely great, regardless of where it comes from or what its pedigree is to stand up for it and try to make sure people know about it. This is one mm. of the things, reasons why I love the ending of the movie Ratatouille Yeah, where Anton Ego, who is seen as a very, very tough critic f- comes to the real, the important, not a realization, it's more of a reminder mm. that, Although it's fair and fun and certainly reasonable and part of the job to be a critic, it is incredibly important for critics to champion the new mm. and to make sure that people know that art can come from unlikely places. Yes. And so you may not think a Nickelodeon animated series about martial arts and like fire powers and water powers could be genuinely profound, but it can be. Mm. And this one is, and we want you to see it. We want you to appreciate it. We want you to experience the profound emotions that we got out of it. And that's one of the reasons why I do what I do so that I can stand up for something like Psycho Goreman and say, I actually got a lot out of this weird fucking movie yeah, that no one's, uh, I know a lot of people who won't, who wouldn't see it because it's called Psycho Goreman. I want you to see Psycho Gorman. Psycho Gorman is wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's goopy and strange. Yeah. And that's for adults purely. That's not quite oh, yeah. the same conversation, but that's the first thing that came yeah. to mind like recently that I'm like, I'm a huge champion for Psycho Gorman. I, I learned recently that uh, one of the red letter media guys is in Psycho Gorman. Oh. Uh, Rich Evans is his name. And, yeah. uh, do you remember the vat of human body parts? Yes, I do. He plays the voice of that thing. Oh, that's nice. Like it screams at one point and just goes, ah, that was, that was this guy, Rich <laughs> Evans him. from Red Letter Media. Good for him. Good gig uh, if you can get it. Yeah. Uh, 
there are things that I've encountered, um, you know, I'm, I'm just going to keep on getting older, but I'm going to keep on consuming things for an, any type of whatever yeah. the planned audience is going to yeah, be. You never, know so, what, you never know where good stuff's going to come. Yeah. Someone has to look. It's, uh, and every, one, every once in a while I'll come upon something that I wish I had had when I was younger. Yeah. Uh, I feel that way about Invader Zim. Yeah, same. Uh, which was an animated show from also Nickelodeon. Like the, or, yeah, Nickelodeon show from the early 2000s. It was done by a, a, an incredibly twisted comic book artist named Jonan Vasquez. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we've talked about it on this show. On, a podcast before about mm-hmm. it. It's it's about the world's worst space invader. Uh, he's so bad. He's like foiled his uh, species invasion plans in the past. He belongs to a species of conquerors uh, that they sort of randomly choose this planet that they have no interest in and tell him go conquer it yourself just to get him out of the way. Yeah, just go uh, on, and, go uh, on, and then we'll and, never and see and you if, again. And, great. and wouldn't you know what that planet is? Earth. Uh, but it's not Earth. It's like this dark carnival version of Earth. Yeah. Where like the, he goes to and he has to pose as an elementary school student and nobody because he's, he's very small so it's only that makes sense yeah but it's it's this twisted world where uh, he, there's an episode where he's uh, distressed that he has to go see the school nurse but he doesn't have internal organs like other human children so he thinks he's going to be so, found out so he's, he's going to be found out so he stalks the school with alien devices stealing organs out of other kids' bodies like yeah. multiple lungs and many hearts and he just starts eating he them. becomes at the end of the episode he's, just he's like gigantic and organs are falling out of his mouth yeah. as he talks <laughs> It's really gross. And he passes his physical. This is a, it's really gross. It's a sick show. It I think that my description of that episode elucidates yeah. that. That, that, may, that may be the most twisted episode, but it's mm-hmm. really good. It's really good. Well, the, the one where he turns uh, another character into a baloney is also pretty twisted. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm delicious. Gaz, uh, <laughs> taste me. I'm delicious. <laughs> Um, I, I was a weird little kid. I liked yeah. weird shit. And that's something that totally would have been my jam if mm. I had run into it when I was like 10. Yeah. That's how I feel about Gravity Falls. Mm. And lately it's how I really feel about the Owl House, which is currently going, mm. I think it was supposed to be three or four seasons, but Disney and their finite wisdom decided to cancel it. They're going to let the story end, but they're going to do like a truncated third season apparently. But um, yeah. the Owl House is about uh, a, a teen girl. Uh, who uh, a, t- a teen bisexual girl, which is cool. Like she's got crushes like, on multiple people, and that's uh, actually and that's actually discussed in the show. Oh, good. They don't. It's, it's they not. Don't, like... It's not. It's not like the talked about a lot. But she's got a crush on a girl, and then she mm. starts having more of a crush on a guy, and it's totally fine. And that's really, really great. Would have been great to have that normalized when I was a kid. Um, and uh, she ends up in this. Like following an owl through a magical door, and that magical door is in a land full of magic and wonder, where everything's kind of fucked up. Like they live on a giant, like a like a gigantic, like deity basically that died. And so, like, where do you live? I live on the toenail. Like that's, Jeez, all right. uh, and uh, she ends up working for uh, like apprenticing under a witch who's like an absolute outcast and pariah, and. Um, mm. Wonderful stories, really, really clever, great bit of mythos, uh, but it's sweet in unexpected ways. It earns all of its drama. I love its queerness. Uh, it's really, really great. It's really, right. And I, I don't know where it's going. I mean, maybe it could let me down in the end, but like so far it's really, really good, right. and I do hope people, more people see it and show right. Disney how wrong they were. I, I like that her sexuality is discussed. Like, mm-hmm. remember when uh, there was a minor stir when Loki... Yeah, uh, like had had like an illusion. It's like, oh yes, I've messed with messed around with men and women, and that's the, that was like yeah. the last you heard. Well, of again, it. just it's a kids' show mm. allegedly, but like she, the only love interest she's had for most of it is a girl. Okay, 
awesome. Mm. And they're and it's 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 like teen stuff. They're all like too embarrassed to say anything, and you're waiting for the declaration so of love. Yeah, but just like it's clear, like there's a romance. there's a whole storyline that's all about um, like. Um, some some monster that'll take the form of what scares you, and this girl who has a crush on our protagonist uh, is if, if you didn't know it before, you know it in this episode because they're afraid to face this monster because what's going to come out is they're afraid to ask the protagonist to prom. So this oh, is okay. as, this is as openly queer as I've ever seen a kids show. All right, and it's really great. And on top of that, it's really great. It's good representation, and it's really really great. Uh uh-huh. That's awesome. I really wish I could have had that when I was a kid. It's if, Seriously, if you like Gravity Falls, if you like Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, see The Owl House. It's really wonderful. It's, you can find it on Disney+. Plus. Check it out. And I'm sure there's more stuff we're missing besides, but yeah. just off the top of our heads. We should move on, right. but hopefully that helps some people find some cool shows. And thank you for writing in. I'm glad, I'm glad we have a kindred. Yeah. Uh, here's a letter from Paula. Hello, Paula. Hi, Paula. Uh, Hey, guys. I was just listening to your Cancel Too Soon episode on Dark Intruder uh, at, at, at work. And you said something about Leslie Nielsen's character making reference to the gods that Lovecraft made up, specifically mentioning Dagon as the example. Now, I don't know much of anything about H.P. Lovecraft, but I do know a tiny bit about ancient gods. And funnily enough, Dagon was actually a real god that people worshipped once upon a time. You are right about that, and I was wrong. Thank you right. for bringing this up. I yield well, the floor. Yeah, there's a, a little bit here. I wasn't uh, in, thinking about In fact, that. Dagon is referenced in the Christian Bible. Uh, when the... F- when the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant from Israel, they place it in Dagon's temple. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, all of this ran through my head in about two seconds, and rather than let it go and continue through my day, I decided to stop the podcast, <laughs> stop working, and email you this admittedly trivial piece of information, mm. like the true nerd that I am. Bless you all. Thank um, you. I hope that this didn't come off as nitpicking. No, oh, no, no. D- please. Please th- educate. If there's nits, pick them. Yeah. Uh, I hope this didn't come off as nitpicking or a fact checking to you. It was just a random useless fact that I wanted to share. Anyway, keep up the good work. Cancel Too Soon is still my favorite podcast. I've listened to every episode multiple times. Wow. And you guys still managed to make me laugh every time. All the best, Paula. Thank, oh, thank you, Paula. You. Um, so t- two things with this. Uh, one, yes. I knew that in the back of my head and... I'll explain why I, I veered towards Lovecraft instead of talking about the original uh, mythology in a moment. Uh, but one thing I did read once, and I wish I could cite specifically so this would sound more scholarly as opposed to... It's true, I read that once. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I had read somewhere that the reason why in the Bible, mm-hmm. in the Ten Commandments... There is a commandment about how you're not allowed to make graven images. Yes. And when you read it just flat without context, it looks like it's basically saying you're not allowed to draw a fish. Mm. You, may, you may make no images of that which is under the sea or something to that effect. Okay. And it seems like if you've drawn a fish, you're going to hell. Like that's when I was a kid. That's what I read it. And apparently that's because Dagon was very popular. Yeah. And it was very yeah. specifically trying to outlaw these, mm. these competitive religions, mm. which raises some questions about how insecure God was feeling that day, but well, it, anyway. A, a, a lot of, uh, if you read, go through the, I'm not no biblical scholar, yeah. but uh, it, I, I know that if you go through the Old Testament, there are a, lo- a lot of sort of the uh, the stringent rules about uh, you know, mm. how uh, certain religious sects ought to behave yeah. are very much about, they're not about appeasing God, they're about uh, maintaining the tribe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're about sort of yeah, keeping, practical you know, concerns, keeping the yeah. tribe together. Uh, like a, a lot of sort of, and we're still living this down today, a lot of sort of the anti-sex rhetoric that people like to sort of mm-hmm. nitpick out of the Bible. Don't do that kind of nitpicking, by the way. Um, yeah. Uh, all comes from this uh, 
a misconception that human sperm was a limited resource. Yeah, the they just didn't bodies, understand how science works. Th- yeah, they didn't know that. They thought you would yeah. run out. So if you have too much sex, you cannot propagate. And yeah. our, our, it was seen as practical advice. Ex- it was practical advice, and especially if you know life expectancy was much lower then. Mm-hmm. It was actually much harder to survive then. So actually, propagation was actually really important to keeping the tribe alive. Yeah, we need to keeping have as many the, kids the, as the village around. Yeah, yeah, have yeah. a lot of kids. So don't have a lot of extramarital sex. Only have sex in within the tribe. Yeah. That's we, true for a lot of things we, in the Bible. We, we know about. different now. Stop putting your sexual hangups on religion, anyway, yeah. uh, and stop using religion to, to Con- justify context sexual was hangups. Everything. Context was everything. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I didn't know that about Dagon. Yeah, but yeah. I, I've read that before, and in, in, in reasonably scholarly sources like I, histories of. I have no no reason not to yeah. believe you on that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And um, and I I didn't mean to be uh, pithy about religion. I mean, I have my own beliefs or whatever. But like, literally, if you read the Bible. There are t- lines from God where God says, I am a jealous God. He literally, he, she, mm. it, whatever. They literally say that. Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> if you're the one true God, it raises questions, right? Mm. That always weirded me out. But anyway, I, I, that's a whole other thing. Mm. Um, so, but that's the thing. Totally true. The reason why I veered towards describing as Lovecraftian, and I mentioned Dagon because Dagon is more well known, but uh, Leslie Nielsen also name drops Azathoth, which mm. is a Lovecraftian creation. Yeah. Uh, so I'm pretty sure the writers were mostly getting it from Lovecraft, but clearly Lovecraft got it from some sort of research he had done at some point. Yeah. Uh, so yes, thank you for the for the a, a moment down history lane, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's important to remember that as influential and as artistically significant as Lovecraft is, he was also a racist asshole oh golly so yes. if we can take away a little credit from him i'm fine with that yes, <laughs> let's, just, let's just remove that one thing <laughs> don't don't look up the name of his cat uh, uh, anyway moving on uh, here's a letter from adelaide um hello cenobibs and withhead Ooh. Ooh, or cenobites uh, i love hellraiser so much i know you do uh i just finished listening to your iron list episode on horror comedies and i had a recommendation i wanted to give both of you but also a general question beyond that okay first let me tell you about a film so incredulous that ronald reagan supposedly tried to have it destroyed Mm. dude bro party massacre three is the first i haven't seen this i've heard heard, i've never seen i've heard about let's let's let's, it's the first and only installment of a franchise about a fraternity who fight a continuing family tree of serial killers that all go, go by the moniker motherface it features insanely fun kills, ridiculous characters that make sense within the universe, and a genuine loving send-up to uh, 1980s horror and all of its feats and faults. Uh, it's my second favorite horror comedy ever. If it sounds even slightly intriguing, I highly recommend it. Um, I've heard mixed things about Dude Bro, Dude Bro Party Massacre. Yeah, I know some uh, people who love it. I know some people who some aren't people, fans. Um, I've, I've heard it called like a, a really good horror comedy, and some people have described it as one of the worst, which means it's going to be interesting. Yeah, I always get the impression that... like. Hmm. The, the impression I got from other people was that some people thought it was trying too hard to okay. be like, you know, shocking, well, shocking or, you know, trauma esque or whatever. Mm. And didn't you know whatever. But that doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, I have not gotten around to that. I really do need to one of these days. I know a lot of people who really, really are fond of it. Uh, it's got Greg Sestero and Patton Oswalt and Nina Hartley. No. How oh. bad could it be? Nina Hartley, the porn star. Yep. Yeah. Legendary Nina Hartley. Mm. Um, um, and, and Pat Oswalt as well. Yeah, <laughs> and, and Greg Sestero, who uh, we all know him as the star of Retro Puppet Master. Yes, he's done nothing else of note. Nothing else. Of no, note. he's the guy from the room. Yeah, and he was almost in that one Malcolm in the Middle episode. Anyway, moving <laughs> on. Uh, beyond that, though, I wanted to know how uh, you normally go about recommending p- uh, people movies. Hmm. 
beyond your podcasts. Mm. When you meet new people or have friends ask you for movie recommendations, do you have go-to general picks that fit most people? Mm. I almost always immediately jump to Some Like It Hot, A Monster Calls, and Your Name. I'm really curious your thoughts and answers. Sincerely yours, Adelaide. Uh, that's a good point. And as when, when you tell people, when you meet people or whatever, and they and you, the people ask, like, what do you do? And you get to say you're a film critic. Mm. Um, usually, there is an immediate <clears throat> follow-up question. And I always wonder if other jobs get this. It'd be like, oh, I'm a film critic. Oh, really? What's your favorite movie? I wonder if other jobs like, oh, what are you? I'm a doctor. Oh, really? What's your favorite disease? Well, we're we're critics. We res- we respond to art. You would ask a food critic what their favorite food might of be. Of course, I would. Um, but yeah. I would ask if I, if I met a food critic, I'd be like, "Hey, where should I be eating right now? Like, what's yeah, the, yeah. you're in the, you're in L.A. Tell me yeah. what's good." And I I, I jest. It's very natural. Mm. Um, there's usually two questions. It's either who are some of your favorite movies or filmmakers because you're just sort of testing out the critic to see if the recommendations are going <laughs> to fit your taste. Yeah, very reasonable. I'm not offended by it. Very very cool. Uh, or what's good lately Yeah, is often very, very common. And that's why, and usually that's what I veer towards is what's recent, what's novel. They're likely not to have seen it. Mm. Um, and I usually go with, if I have some sense of their taste and there's something I can think of that fits it, I'll go there. But usually I'll just go with whatever mm. excites me. Yeah. So like recently, for example, I would say, hey, if you love horror and comedy, you should see Werewolves Within. Mm. That movie is amazing. And if you really, if you don't mind if it gets really, really gory, see Psycho Gorman. I hate mm. to bring it up all the time, but there you go. Um, oh, do you like, um, are you from L.A.? You should see Summertime. See Summertime for sure. Summertime That's one is, of the best movies of this year. It's a beautiful film about Los Angeles and poetry and young people trying to express themselves in really powerful ways. Uh, it's incredibly inventive and soulful, and there's really nothing else like it right now. And I love it to pieces. Please go see that. Are mm. uh, looking for something to see with your kids? Make, have you seen Mitchell's versus the Machines, right? Because Mitchell's versus the Machines is not only very fun and full of exciting like moments and action and comedy, but it's actually very intelligent and it's got really good representation for the most part. And it's absolutely a treat and it's way better than you'd expect an animated movie to be right now. It's a Lovecraftian demon in the form of a giant Furby. It's really wonderful. Let the dark harvest begin. So yeah, I I usually lean towards something recent unless they ask for something else, but usually I go for something that recently came out so that it will be new to them. I I had a conversation like this with uh, some of my friends who work in a video store uh, up at Cinephile Video and if you work in a video store, you get it all the time. What's your favorite movie? Yeah. And... I fucking dare you. Yeah, ra- rather rather than just sort of shrug and say, oh, I don't know. Um, they... I'm imagining like two video store clerks like in like drip along Daffy, like walking down the, the middle of the road in like the western town, you know, sun going down, the clock ticking, and then when they finally get to the town square, what's your favorite movie? Oh shit. <laughs> Bam, Tokyo story. Um <laughs> it's uh No, but uh if you work in a video store, you learn to sort of be a little bit more tactful about it. You don't just sort of shrug and say, I don't know, I got so many. Um, people are, people they, are, people want to talk about movies. Yeah. And so, they, they probably don't get to, which is why they're trying to engage So they, with you. they usually try to get something out of the video customer. Store, like, you what, probably like stuff. What are you looking for tonight? What are some of your favorite films? Mm-hmm. I can recommend something along those lines. Um, yeah. But sometimes you get a really hard nosed customer who's really going to press. Mm. Like, no, what's your favorite? Like, you have one. What is it? You, it's like above all others. And so they usually at that point, they have one like in their back pocket. 
that is a film they like. It's not necessarily going to be their favorite every day. No, that's how that's how life works. But know, yeah, so, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, so they so somebody like even asked me when I was in the video store, "What's your favorite movie?" And I just said, "Persona." Ingmar Bergman's film, Persona. Mm. Very good movie. I love it. Is it my favorite movie? I have a lot of favorite movies. Sure. <laughs> a lot of movies. I, you there, have number one. Yeah, I have one. There are great movies, and I enjoy great movies. Uh, and I remember. You don't have to be monogamous with no. the movie you like. You no, can no, no, to no. like as many movies you, as you want. You feel that way when you're like in high school. It's like, like this is possessive. my favorite. I, this is mine. This yeah, is the one I that defines it, me. I keep yeah. it in my locker. You know, I, 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 this is always going to be number one on my list. Yeah, I define uh, myself by my love for this movie. Yeah, and, and, and I also like. Oh shit! I also like this movie. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had an experiment once and it completely failed, but uh, I, I thought that I could guess somebody's age uh, and sort of like the path they were on to discovering movies, depending what their top 10 looked like. Because I, I found mm-hmm. that a lot of people in their 20s were discovering older movies for the first time in a lot of cases. Yeah. So their top 10s usually included like four movies from the last year, like mm-hmm. a few like cult classics they had just seen for the first time and like two really old classics like ringers you know like oh I only just saw something like it now oh I only just saw for the first time Frankenstein so Frankenstein like a couple of years ago somebody said oh Good Night and Good Luck was one of my favorite movies they had just seen it like last year and they had never seen a movie like that before it it might be your favorite Mm. thing you might actually be that but it's Mm. also potentially some recency Mm. bias slipping in there you know yeah but so having like one with a bullet was sort of anathema to working in a video store. Uh, so, but they always had one just in case they had the hard nosed customer. I always said persona, uh, Roger Ebert got this question a lot. He always said, La Dolce Vita. That was his back pocket film. It's like, what's your favorite movie of all time? La Dolce Vita. What does that mean? Your yeah. favorite film? One you want to watch at any time? Mm-hmm. I mean, cause you get a lot of different things for a lot of different movies. Uh, when it comes to recommending things, like if somebody says what's good, I do what you do. I try yeah. to think of things I've enjoyed recently. Yeah. Um, if they say like what what's some, sometimes I get this question: What's something I need to see? Oh. Not like recently, like to be a good like film person. Yeah. What's important I need to see in order to be well in yeah. order to be well read, well viewed, whatever. And, and then yeah. then then you can like snap out with like a, a grand classic that maybe not everybody's seen. Have you seen Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey? Yeah. See 2001 a Space Odyssey. Yeah, it's it's yeah. part of the cinematic yeah. vernacular at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. Even if even if it's not your favorite thing, you'll understand other movies well now because it's such a lodestone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for the for the medium. That's a that's a good one too. Another one I get a lot of is what's a great movie I haven't seen. That, like, and that's yeah. a tough one. And that's a tough one because you don't know what they've seen. You well, don't know what they've I, sought I, out. I immediately know? come back and ask, what have you seen? Exactly. But like, you know, that's the whole thing. It's like they're looking for something, they're looking for something to unearth a treasure, mm. you know? But I don't know how deeply they've looked. Usually I find if they're asking that question, they probably haven't looked that deeply. Because they, if they have, they probably have other resources to find recommendations for things. And they're not necessarily laying it all on me. Uh-huh. But so, so you usually don't have to dig too hard to find an interesting like cult film to recommend them. Yeah. But like even then, I do try to think about it or mm-hmm. whip out something weird. Like, hey, have you seen the Australian 1980s crime comedy Malcolm? <laughs> it's about an eccentric inventor who gets roommates who are bank robbers and he builds a little robot to help them rob banks. And it's really cute. <laughs> Uh, and I've I've been on podcasts before, and I, I admit the temptation to skew weird hits real hard in those yeah. situations, especially when uh, you have several other co-hosts who recommend really well-known things. Yeah, uh, I was on a podcast recently for IGN, uh, specifically for IGN Africa. Uh, That's so cool. So I'm on a, I'm on a podcast in Africa. If you're in South Africa, you can probably find me. Uh, 
But uh, they asked, like, what's a good horror movie for the Halloween season? What's, like, something scary? And somebody mm. said, oh, I like The Exorcist. Yes, I like The Exorcist. Mm. I like The Shining, too. Oh, I also like great. The Shining. I recommended Basket Case, too. Uh, yeah. Which is a little bit off the beaten path. I mean, yeah. horror hounds know people that movie. People but, yeah. don't need us. Again, it's... It, <sighs> To ad- to remind us that the classic movies are classic is very reasonable and fine. Mm. And if someone says, hey, what are some of the best haunted house movies ever made? Yeah, The Shining's going to be on that list. But you don't need me to affirm that. Mm. Uh, it will happen because it's just that good, but you don't need me to do that. The best thing I can do as a critic is to, when you give me a platform, mm. to tell people about movies that actually could use a platform. Yeah. The Shining doesn't need one right now. There may come a day when it does again, but right now it doesn't. This is the time for Basket Case too, Because mm. someone, if, if one person listens to that podcast and goes, oh, I guess I need to see that, and then does, mm. you really did your job that day. Yeah. And that's great. I think we have time for one more. Okay. Um, here's a letter from Alan. Hello, Alan. Hi, Alan. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, uh, I am interested in the clo- oh, the clothesline analogy of plot. This is something, oh, yeah. this something, something I, I made yeah, up. Yeah, um, yeah, I like this. The idea that the plot of the movie is like a clothesline on which you hang quilts. We come to see the quilts and not the clothesline. Uh, this was pretty much the same attitude taken by mystery writer and occasional screenwriter Raymond Chandler. Mm-hmm. A good plot was one which produced good scenes. You didn't need to have to wait till you got to the solution of a mystery novel before you could enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You should be able to enjoy the journey as much as, if not more so, than the destination. Mm-hmm. He believed a good mystery was one in which you could read even if you knew, uh, even if you knew that the ending was missing. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> mystery of Edward Drood. Uh, mm. This Dickens unfinished novel. Yeah. Uh, in his early novels, his method of plotting was to cobble together two or three short stories he'd written together uh, for pulp magazines, connecting them in ways that usually didn't make much sense, but he didn't care as long as he got good scenes out of it. Yeah. Also, Alfred Hitchcock never seemed to care too much about plots. He believed in the gimmick of the movie, which he called the MacGuffin thing. Uh, mm. Popular. I don't think he invented the term. Um, no. I think that's it's misattributed. I think. Um, yeah, but, maybe, but yeah. Uh, but the thing was that the thing that everyone was chasing after and was wanting to kill or die for was not that important the only thing that mattered was that the audience was able to believe that it was important to the people on the screen exactly uh it didn't have to be important to the audience the audience didn't even have to understand it as long as they were able to believe that it's something uh important to the people up on the screen and that was enough yeah if you have a good setup Mm. for your movie and it gets people out of the house and doing something Mm. unexpected that's all you really need i remember critics saying about the marvel movies the only exposition i need for these movies is for someone to say okay you see this this is the cube. Everybody wants the cube. Everyone is after the cube. Got it? Go. <laughs> kind of, yeah. yeah. Also, the director of Can You Ever Forgive Me, uh, the Melissa McCarthy movie, said that when it came time to uh, to cut down the running time of a movie, this is when you normally cut out scenes that didn't have much to do with the plot. There's a sweet scene in which Melissa McCarthy, uh, her character, went to a smoky dive in Manhattan and listened to a drag queen singing a torch song. It didn't have anything to do with the plot, so it could go. But she kept it in because she reasoned that the audiences don't really remember the plots. They remember scenes like this one. Yeah. So how important is plot? What are examples of movies in which twists and turns and surprises in the plot offered pleasures to the audience? I saw Mm. Diabolique for the first time with an audience at the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto. The audience made that satisfying ah sound or maybe it's like (laughs) oh sound for that movie. But the surprise came at the end, which surprised me because I thought the movie had been around long enough that everyone already knew the surprise. Mm. I certainly knew it. I won't be reveal it because apparently some people still don't know it. This is Alan signing off. Alan, Um, uh, thanks for bringing this up. And yeah, Whitney, I don't know how long you've been working on it, uh, mm-hmm. but you've got a great analogy there. Yeah, and we were talking, I think we were talking about Dune 
And uh, well, we, we were, were talking about. Um, I, I got some heat for sort of fudging through a lot of the details of Shang Chi. Oh, that's what we were talking and, about, uh, right? And I got some details. Slight, slight, wrong. Slightly wrong. Yeah, um, I still haven't seen it, so I can't yeah. say. When I see that movie, yeah. and I will, I, I'm looking forward to it. It's yeah. a, oh. it in the theater. Uh, when I see that movie, I will go back and listen to our podcast, and I will. I promise you, I will. You're gonna tell, correct, I, correct what I got. Well, wrong in that I'll episode. see how bad it really was. Right. I'll see how bad it really was. Uh, my theory is that, and as my analogy points to, that plot is relatively unimportant to most movies. Mm. Uh, sure, when you're watching something like Diabolique that has like a twists in it, a big surprise. Yeah. I saw a movie uh, just the other day called Creepy by Kiyoshi oh, Kurosawa. Yeah, you go, yeah. And that has a few surprises along mm. the way. And, and having those re- those surprises revealed to you, these twists in the plot, are an important part of sort of staying engaged with that. But most films don't have that. And when you are recounting a film back to somebody, or when you're describing a film, or when you're thinking about it... Mm-hmm. Unless it's something that's a really impressive plot twist or something you really didn't see coming, you're probably not thinking about the plot. You're thinking about fun character moments. You're thinking about sets. You're thinking about uh, an action set piece, perhaps, or Mm -hmm. an emotional moment or a speech. Mm -hmm. Uh, The plot is the thing that functions to string those things together, but Mm -hmm. those are what the film is really about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So when I get the the plot details wrong in Shang-Chi, it's because I don't... find that to be totally relevant to the things that are more I, important to me. I, I would argue, I, I will say this as a counterpoint to that. I would argue that as a critic, uh, it is our responsibility not to get things like that wrong. This, this is true. And, and if, we, and if I, this I is a remiss print, if I were your editor again two, yeah. and you sent me a review and I found out that you've gotten plot points wrong, I would at the very, I would hopefully catch them beforehand. But I would, at the very least, if we said, "Hey, we you know, we a, a we made a correction, changer, we yeah. made a correction to this uh, thing, it mischaracterized or said the wrong name or whatever like mm. that," and that would be fine, and that would be mm. that these things happen. That's not the end of the world, um, because you didn't like ruin anyone's life or anything. You got a name wrong or whatever, mm. so it's, it's not a big deal. Uh, but uh, regardless, I really like this metaphor, and I was thinking about this a lot when I was watching Dune, uh, the new Dune. Uh, is the second live act, well, second live action feature film adaptation. I haven't seen the TV miniseries, uh, and we were talking about how David Lynch's film makes the plot seem incomprehensible, uh-huh. but is incredibly uh, uh, enveloping in its sense of place and its sense of mysticism and mystery. Uh, and it's really it, weird, it, weird imagery, aliens, yeah. technologies. It, it's yeah. all about how strange an alien this thing is. And the Denis Villeneuve version focuses so much on the plot that the plot is now a hundred percent clear. I can tell you everything that happens in that movie, but it's somehow a lot less interesting. Yeah, now, isn't because it? all of the things that aren't the plot mm. are gone. Yeah. And I was having a conversation with someone, and I was explaining this, and they were like, "Well, what about the palm trees?" There's two fucking lines of dialogue about why we have palm trees. Mm. That's not the same thing. <laughs> and when you think, and, and this is, and the the can you ever forgive me example is a really really good mm. one where. Again, the plot of that movie is clear. You don't need that much to convey the plot of this movie about a woman who is 
uh, hard on is she's an author whose books aren't selling and she's really in like a bad place financially and she discovers that she can there's this forge letters yeah, very there's well. a secondary yeah. market for like old letters from like famous people and as someone who's written a lot of history books she can do that very well and so she ends up starting to sell forge just just correspondence from one person to another mm. and it seems like you're just sort of bilking this like these like rich schmoes who have way too much time and money on their hands and it seems like a relatively harmless crime but it adds up yeah and it ends up you know kind of taking over their life and it becomes it's a really good movie it grew on me more and more over time um but yeah the plot's not the thing that i remember what i remember about that movie is the relationship between melissa mccarthy and richard e grant mm. that's what i remember that's what counts yeah um, but and, there are movies that do care about plot, and I find that when I, as a critic, am focusing on plot, mm-hmm. I may make an aside, this doesn't make sense, or whatever like that, but if I'm really focusing on plot, it's because the movie wasn't giving me something interesting enough that I had anything else to do with my mind. Yeah. If yeah. all I'm doing is thinking about your plot, A, your plot had better fucking work. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, if, it, it's not, if it's not, if it's not like absolutely razor sharp your plot, and that's all you're mm-hmm. giving us you're doing it wrong. But if the characters aren't interesting enough, if the experiences that they're going in is interesting enough, if the ideas that you're playing with aren't interesting enough, that all I can think about is literally what's happening. Hmm. And then I start asking myself, am I buying this? Does it have an, its own internal logic? Then hmm. that's, you've basically stripped away everything else well, in the movie I could care about. And that's not a good place to be. It's the least interesting way to look at a film, uh, I, I think. I, um, this idea of like sort of connecting, uh, this is something you see in a lot of uh, conversations about like the big blockbuster films, the big superhero mm. films. Like this is how this connects to these other characters and just like a little reference they did to this. This is not encouraging like a, a critical thinking. This is not talking about mm. sort of the tone or what these films are about at all. Yeah. It's just talking about the structure that's what people are getting really excited about is the structure yeah. of these films. I think a good example of what I'm talking about is the James Bond movies, hmm. specifically uh, some of the earlier ones. Yeah, the more travel yeah, not, not deals, yeah. Specifically not Casino Royale, because that actually has a really tight script. Yeah. A lot of the scripts in the James Bond movies feel like a couple of, a couple of different scripts sneezed into a bowl. Yeah. Uh, you don't know why James Bond is in this country. You don't know what this opera is that he's attending. You don't know the lady spy that he's supposed to meet there. Yeah. And like it's been vaguely sketched out at MI6. Yeah. But then he goes and ends up like globe trekking to another location. You're not exactly sure what he's looking for in that scene. It doesn't matter. Why really. are we there so we can see that? We're there because we want to see James Bond in a nice suit, drinking yeah. a nice drink in an, uh, in a the, quote exotic location. The, the, a good example of this is a spy who loved me, which has this big, incredible, like weird orchestra opera thing at the pyramids in Egypt, mm, yeah. and there's a light show and everything. Do and you it, remember why he was seeing? I opera? couldn't tell you that if you put a gun <laughs> to my head. Yeah, but, but I remember, remember the that. Scene? Because that is different. Uh I have not seen that. And it's just him fighting a guy to the death on the side. And I'm like, cool. Mm. That's why we're there. Who was that guy? Why was he there? What was he there for? None of that stuff matters. Everyone knows the scene from North by Northwest where Cary Grant is chased by a crop duster. Mm. Why? Because it's unique. It's distinctive. Mm. It's... It's very threatening. Can you imagine if someone in a biplane just tried to mow you down and like grind you up in the propeller, even though that would kill the pilot? No, <laughs> the you, thing would crash. But it makes no sense. Th- at there's all. Uh, 
that said, you know, you do uh, need something to hang this on. I yeah. think that's the function of the plot is exactly. to make sure just make it enough. seem like it it looks like like there's a story happening or it looks yeah. a little bit like real life. It was just a bunch of like unconnected action sequences. That might serve a function, but it wouldn't yeah. feel quite the same. It wouldn't feel like a linear narrative. It wouldn't well, feel like also, we've accomplished anything or the people have grown a little bit. And, well, you know. people, would, there wouldn't have been sort of that change, but more, most importantly, it would affect uh, pacing. Yeah. We can't have just action scene after action scene. We'd get yeah. exhausted. Yeah, I've seen movies that are nothing but wall-to-wall action, and they're fun for a while, but you can only keep that up for so long before mm-hmm. you need to take a break and tell me something mm-hmm. new. Because to, at this to, point, you're just fighting, and I forgot why. To, to quote one of my favorite authors, Daniel Pinkwater, it's like eating five of the best pieces of chocolate cake you've ever had. You just can't handle number six. Yeah. 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 After just a while, you need something else. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and, and yeah, pacing is a really important thing, and plot can be really, really useful for that. Mm-hmm. It can be useful to take a breather. Talk the, about some stuff. But there are plenty of movies that don't have like a conventional plot or even story, as it were. The films of Jacques Tati are an excellent example okay. of this, where people are just sort of having tiny little mini stories throughout. These like amusing yeah. little life's moments. Monsieur Hulot's holiday. He goes on holiday. That's the story. Yeah. He just goes to a beach resort and spends mm. some time but there. But it moves forward in time. It drives mm. us forward. We're going somewhere. Yeah. And that's something that movies take place in time. This is something you can't take away from them. Books don't. Books yeah. are static. But when you're watching a movie, it flows. And you can adjust that flow if you really want to. You want to fast forward or whatever like that. But like, generally speaking, you're just following something in time. And to maintain the audience's attention mm-hmm. over a long period of time, we're easily distracted animals. Mm-hmm. We're constantly looking for, for stimuli. That's what we do. We're coming up with it in our own head. We're like watching TV while we're on our phone, while we're listening to music. Like it's <laughs> ridiculous. We we're looking for stuff. We're voraciously consuming ideas and inter- and information and entertainment and and stimuli. Mm. So if your art takes place over amount of time, you need to keep our attention over however long your fucking movie is. Two hours. It's one hundred and twenty minutes. Mm. You want me to think about nothing but your movie? you'd better grab me and you'd better make sure that every once in a while you re-grab me. Yeah. So the plot needs to move forward a little. Just something new needs to happen. We need to have a reason to go somewhere else. We need to have a new bit of intimidation. We need to have a new bit of love. Mm. Something. But it's, you can be pretty flexible about what. Mm. Really can. I've seen movies where almost nothing happens and I'm completely enraptured. And I've seen movies where there's a ton of incidents and I'm bored out of my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it, this is where a lot of the art comes from is being able to understand how to balance these things. Mm. Um, so yeah, I generally agree. I, I look at the plot of the new Dune and I get it now, but I care less because all of the weird human stuff that makes the world feel lived in is gone. Mm. And all it is is plot. And I'm not invested in that because the plot is just the stuff that happens. It's it's not yeah, even they're not yeah. even doing a good job of really getting into the themes of it very well. So mm. this that that for me was a perfect illustration. I was thinking a lot about that metaphor while I was watching it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's that's something I've I've been sticking by, and it's 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 a belabored metaphor, but you know it's mm. one I've been using for a while. So I guess I'll stick yeah. with it. Well, the longer you do a job, the more you come up with like you know your own ideas about yeah about it. And I think any critic who does this 
consistently and like like not just like once in a while, but like mm. as a job for a while. After a while, they'll have their own theories. Yeah, we should really start a new Cahier du Cinema. Um, but, but one that's not going to be bought out by Weed Bros or whatever. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you made the, me weep. Dude. I know that the the, uh, the shuddering of Kaiju Cinema was like one of the biggest blows. Ka- kudos to, to the people uh, at Kaiju Cinema, by the way, was the snootiest film magazine in history. They had the absolute most outlandish standards, and blessed them for it. And they mm-hmm. gave birth to they they helped give birth to the French New Wave. A lot of the filmmakers were initially critics for the Kaiju Cinema. Uh, and not that long ago when they were finally purchased by like a corporate entity of some kind, mm. everyone fucking walked. They just walked right away. They like, were just that, like, that we day. can't, we know yeah. we can't work under this system. We cannot make the compromises you need to compromise because all we care about is our critical integrity. And all the magazine had what they bought was, their integrity, was the yeah. integrity. And when you, Basically make a flat out statement and say, this magazine has no integrity anymore. This magazine was built on integrity. It's gone. And so are we. And I just, I did a standing ovation, like in my apartment when I heard that. <laughs> it made me so happy. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's sad. The magazine is what it is now, but like, it's good for them. Mm. All right. That is it for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everybody who wrote in. We're sorry if we didn't get to your email. Please. You know, uh, give us some time, or eventually we do move on. We can't, you know, if we did everything in chronological order, we'd be so backlogged. Uh, but if there's anything important you want us to get to, maybe it's timely for some reason, feel free to nudge us on Twitter. Uh, we are at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Deviani. I'm but at Whitney Seibel. Whitney's the person to talk to. He's in charge of the emails. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're also, uh, we also, we accept your emails at letters at email, letters at email dot <laughs> letters at critically acclaimed.com wow it's okay www.internet.com so, yeah letters at critically acclaimed.net that is the email address no. letters at critically acclaimed.net be sure to listen to our podcast at podcast.com you know what i'm kidding, I'm kidding. Right. I'll, I'll stop giving you crap thank okay. you i it's late. I screwed up. Anyway, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. box. Good luck getting that one right, Whitney. There's like nine numbers in there. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't remember nine numbers. Uh, I write us in at the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. What? <laughs> All right. Well, Whitney's better than I am. I can accept that. Just more, um, maybe just more caffeinated, I think. There you go. Anyway, we said the whole Twitter thing. And thank you, everyone. Thank you to all of our patrons, without whom our show would not exist. Uh, if you yeah. want access to our exclusive shows on the Patreon, uh, it is patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We got a lot of stuff over there. And seriously, this, the lights would not be on were it not for our patrons. So thank yeah. you, everybody uh, who joins in. Uh, and um, that that's it. We'll be back next week with more letters and stuff. Have a great week. Stay safe and sane. Sincerely yours. Bibs and winning.